Välkomna till Internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Farrosad. Och vi är programansvariga för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra författaren Warsan Kire i samtal med Judith Kiros. Varmt välkomna. Dikten kan börja med att han går baklänges in i rummet. Han tar av sig jackan och sätter sig ner för resten av sitt liv. Det är så vi får pappa tillbaka. Jag kan få blodet att rinna upp i näsan igen. Myror som rusar in i ett hål. Våra kroppar växer neråt. Mina bröst försvinner. Dina kinder mjuknar. Tänderna sjunker in i tandköttet. Jag kan se till att vi älskas. Säg bara ordet. Ge dem stumpar till händer om de någonsin rör oss utan samtycke. Jag kan skriva dikten och få det att försvinna. Stivpappa spottar tillbaka alkoholen i glaset. Mammas kropp rullar tillbaka upp för trappan. Benet hoppar på plats igen. Kanske behåller hon barnet. Vi kanske klarar oss. Jag skriver om det här livet och den här gången finns det så mycket kärlek. Du kommer inte att kunna se bortom det. Du kommer inte att kunna se bortom det. Jag skriver om det här livet och den här gången finns det så mycket kärlek. Vi kanske klarar oss. Kanske behåller hon barnet. Mammas kropp rullar tillbaka upp för trappan. Benet hoppar på plats igen. Stivpappa spottar tillbaka alkoholen i glaset. Jag kan skriva dikten och få det att försvinna. Ge dem stumpar till händer om de någonsin rör oss utan samtycke. Jag kan se till att vi älskas, säg bara ordet. Dina kinder mjuknar. Tänderna sjunker in i tandköttet. Våra kroppar växer neråt, mina bröst försvinner. Jag kan få blodet att rinna upp i näsan igen. Myror som rusar in i ett hål. Det är så vi får pappa tillbaka. Han tar av sig jackan och sätter sig ner för resten av sitt liv. Dikten kan börja med att han går baklänges in i rummet. Hello, Arsan. Hello, Judith. It's so lovely to uh, see you here today, and also the sheer amount of people in the audience. Fortunately, I don't have to feel weird about it because they're all here to see you. <laughs> and you. Um, this is actually the third time we speak in some form of setting, and the first time was ages ago, in 2015. Yeah. And it was about your chapbook, Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth. And the second time was right after I translated this, Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head. And this is the third time. <laughs> and fortunately for me, this isn't going to be difficult. <laughs> Your poetry is incredibly complex. It's multivocal. It's generous. And it's empathetic. And what I really wanted to begin in is, I think, the body. What does it mean for you to write about the body? Hmm. Well, I think ever since I could remember, I had a problem with my body. I remember being a little girl and just looking down at my thighs and genuinely having these really... And my thighs were tiny. I'm, I was like eight years old. Um, but I remember just thinking if I could like take a knife and just cut these sections off, it would be better. I always, um, I got bullied a lot inside of the home. So going to school was wonderful, but coming back home, the adults would always make fun of my hair or my nose. So I always felt strange. I remember there was a practice that I would be told, just sit in the corner and pull at your nose. So I spent a long, a long time pulling out my nose. And then I remember afterwards, I started pulling out my hair. So it was always a really visceral, very raw connection that I had with my body. 
uh, which later led to eating disorders and body dysmorphia. I think the real um, defining moment for me was watching Requiem for a Dream. Mm -hmm. At that time, my mother had just bought me diet pills and I had started taking them and I was taking so many of them and I was abusing laxatives at the time as well. And so if you watch Requiem in a Dream, there is the older lady who essentially goes into a mental breakdown trying to lose weight. And it was the first time that I'd seen because I constantly got complimented whenever I did do terrible things in order to look more like uh, this European ideal of beauty. Um, so I remember every time I did, every time I hurt myself more, people would be like, you look so great. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And so watching Requiem uh, for a Dream was the uh, first time I saw, oh, I'm going to actually kill myself doing this. And then, so I started being more honest about the fact that I struggled so badly with self-loathing and I got some help for it. And, I've, and um, so ever since then, the body has been so central because it's how I carried so much of my trauma. I think my mother always makes this comment, you know, um, Watson, under the age of eight, so thin. She doesn't realize maybe something happened at the age of eight. So the body for me has always been a way to protect myself and a, a way to adorn myself. And I, I'm happy to say that, especially after having children, it's the first time I feel fully comfortable in my body and I feel like beautiful, but it, I'm almost reaching 35. And so I look back on all the years I've wasted. And because I struggled with bulimia, I wrote about it, but I'm writing about it some more. So eating disorders always in the back of my head. And I struggle with that, but it's been really the another thing that really changed it for me was I went to Morocco when I was 21 years old. I went to Hammam for the first time and all the women completely take off their clothes. And for the first time I was seeing women that looked like my mother, looked like my friends who looked like everything because it was an African country as well. And just this idea of all these Muslim black, some black, some non-black, sorry, um, all in the room together, just completely naked, rubbing each other down in a non-erotic way, changed my brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, the best thing that I can do, because I hid so much of my issues and um, was, it was very shame-based and I, it, it helps you become very manipulative and a liar, I'm no longer dishonest about it. Mm. So, um, and sometimes people are a little bit taken aback by how honest I am about the things I've experienced, but I know that it helps people because I was frantically searching for somebody that has the same experience as me back then. And it was difficult because it was a lot of people that I didn't relate to and it seemed as though that was the only struggle that they had Whereas I added that on top of every other thing as well. And it felt like, oh, I've got issues around food. I don't like my body didn't seem to be that big of a deal when half of your family just died in a war. So, mm. yeah. And so. you do have a poem that mentions that as well about bulimia. Yes. Um, which apologizes to people suffering from famine back home, yeah. essentially. Yeah. But what I do think is so interesting about this is the word honesty and like how soon it comes up in conversation with you because there is something radically honest about your poetry that also, I think, forces the reader to confront their life a little bit more honestly. I was thinking about the beginning, the first poem. I'm not gonna read it um, because I can't do it as well as you or Athena, but extreme girlhood it's called. Yeah. And in it, the mere fact of being born a woman is a disappointment. Um, okay, I have to do this, I'm sorry, you guys. Born to a lullaby, lamenting melanin, newborn ears checked for the first signs of color. And then, bless the type four child, scalp massaged with the milk of cruelty, cranium cursed, crushed between adult knees, drenched in pink lotion. And I think something about that extreme girlhood and so obviously making it black girlhood is, for me at least, radical. And what you're describing now as well, um, again, just brings me back to conversations with friends or my own childhood. 
uh, or like having a long conversation with a friend of color who spent ages thinking she was huge and tall because her parents and her siblings kept calling her this. And once I was just so outraged, I stood her in front of the mirror and I was like, look at us, we're the same. And it was like a massive moment for her, it completely changed how she viewed herself. And all of that, I think, is mm. deeply, deeply honest, but also deeply painful. Mm. Would you say that writing about it is a way of handling that pain or is it a way of conserving it? Is it a way of mm. nurturing it? No, I think when I was younger, in a way I would, it was um, these, I wrote in a way that the poems were wounds I nurtured and came back to often and then with that, <clears throat> because I kept interfering with it, it was like infected, you know? So <clears throat> I don't really see life in that way anymore. Um, it is definitely a way to, first of all, remove, remove the stigma from it completely. I do come from, my family specifically are the type that if anything happens to you, whether you are the victim or you are the perpetrator, you take it to the grave with you. And um, a lot of sickness is born out of that. And I can see it in my family. So, yeah, possibly too, there is um, this idea of don't air your dirty laundry, but it's not. It's just some issues that we have to deal with. Mm. But how did you reach a point where you were able to write like that? The first time that I wrote about it was um, there was, um, there was a, a writer called Bassi Ikpi. She's a poet um, from... Um, America, she had this, she struggles with mental health issues as well, and she started this thing uh, online where it was, she was writing about like no shame. And so she had this day called No Shame Day where you write about whatever you find particularly shameful, you just write it that one day. So then I wrote about my experience at the hammam. Um, and I remember I went out with my friend that evening and I felt like everybody had read that, and they were aware, even though nobody gave a crap. I was in a shisha bar, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Nobody there reads. So everybody, I felt like everybody was looking at me, and the, the cars driving by were looking at me thinking, look at her, she's got bulimia, like, like I killed somebody or I was a rapist or something. So it took me a really long time to um, come to terms with just living like that. And um, also though, my life, my friends are friends that I've had since I was in high school. I'm very close to particular family members. I keep the same friends, I'm very loyal to the same people. And I have very strong boundaries and like high standards with who I allow into my life. Yeah. And so because of that, um, the people that are close to me, they give me a lot of grace and they're very understanding and they support me and so I, really don't care what other people think. All that I get is um, the emails and the messages I get from girls to, who experience the exact same thing as I did. Um, that gives me more than any little feeling of shame or embarrassment that I have. And at this point, I'm used to it. It's just the facts, yeah. like I'm mentally ill. I mean, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah. <laughs> just read the poem. <laughs> Might as well just write a poem about it. <laughs> Either way, I was gonna be struggling. So yeah. at least I can, um, we can connect over it. Do you think maybe then, I'm not sure if I'm projecting, but what I hear is you have a very kind of um, clear view of who you're writing for. And in that case, if you're writing for a particular group of people, and in a sense, they are also what you said, the person you were looking for as, as a kid, if you have that very strong sense, then why would you be embarrassed? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But I am writing for the younger version of myself. Yeah. And um, I never forget how hopeless that version of me was and how I couldn't see the future. And I know lots of people feel that way, feel like they're not, they don't matter. And, you know, for many different reasons. Another thing is that my sisters that I helped raise, they are 19, one is 10, the other one's 20. They're at those very important ages and I feel like I'm just writing for them as well. And so and it's amazing um, to see them, especially the eldest one, she thinks that she does marketing a promotion for this book. She goes around <laughs> her university telling people about it. But also I can see in her how much less mentally ill she is 
growing up in the same home because I made it completely open for her to speak about anything that she wanted mm. and um, also made it really like when I got to a certain age I wouldn't allow people to comment on the way they, they looked um, no colorism featureism um, fat phobia all of that is so rife and people act like it's a joke it's not a joke mm. you're really affecting people's self-esteem yeah yeah I found a quote by <clears throat> a British horror writer called Julia Armfield. Hmm. I don't know if you read her. No. She wrote this brilliant book called Our Wives Under the Sea. I'm not advertising it. I'm <laughs> advertising your book. <laughs> but I, I read a fascinating essay on her ovarian cyst, essentially. Um, and reading it, it just put me in a position where I had to return to your book. Mm. And let's see if you agree with me that there's correspondence here. Accepting the fact of oneself as a body and therefore a thing with insides, with guts, is accepting the fact of oneself as a thing that can degrade, mutate, unravel. To watch a horror movie is to know that something bad is going to happen. To have a body is really the same thing. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> right? I love that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I even I think about, like, um, I, I, growing up, I'd be compared to, you know, cousins and whatever. And it would always be like, you know, my cousin would be darker skinned but slim. They would be like, oh, if only you guys could swap. Like, either you give her the skin color or you give her the body. Like, it always felt like... Um, there was, even from a very, very young, young age, this pressure to be desirable to who, as a child, how dangerous that is. And then um, I, I, I also understand that in gaining weight from my child brain, it was me trying to fortify my body. It was trying to be um, protect myself through actual flesh. Mm. And then also, there is a thing to, you know, people want to kidnap people that they can easily carry. So I feel like I did, <laughs> like, who knows? Yeah. I'm quite cute. I could have been taken by a serial killer a long time ago. <laughs> but um, it is, there's, it is, especially to live in a, in a woman's body, dangerous, mm. terrifying, mm. Um, especially if you come from certain parts of the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just very funny to imagine a serial killer being like, She's cute, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, they do think about that, though. They think about, like, what time, not only serial killers, but people that are trying to harm you, they do think about, is she going to make much of a fuss? Is, is she, am I going to try to drag her and it's not going to work? They need somebody tiny, small, and quick. <laughs> so be careful, guys. <laughs> True that. But <laughs> the thing that uh, Armfield also says in this quote is that to have a body is to accept mutation. It's to accept change and, I think, a loss of control. Mm -hmm. Is there something about the way in which you write poetry that also corresponds to that? Hmm. I think um, I do definitely... Um, writing sometimes does feel like an out-of-body experience for me. Um, and to the point where I don't like to write in front of other people because I think I look maybe a little bit deranged. Um, I do, what was the question? <laughs> Something. Well, it was about transformation, mm. essentially. Transformation and a kind of loss of control that has to do with having a body. And is that also in some ways how you approach writing or is it very tightly controlled? Okay. Do you kind of go in with an idea of exactly what you want to write and how you want it to develop? Yeah, no, I just go by how I feel. Um, I do write often, and most of it, it is just trying to clear it out, um, release some steam. But I never go in, even earlier when you were talking about like who you write for, I do think of myself as the audience of um, anything bigger than that is distracting and then also affects the way that you write. So um, my writing process is me by myself in a room. I'll either be, sometimes I'll be watching a film and listening to music and reading a book at the same time as writing. So it's kind of like I'm 
um, I was trying to describe it, it's like I'm trying to build a mood board of what I'm trying to do. And even I was speaking with um, my publisher and fellow writer, Nee Parks, who is here tonight, about um, how the, the poem or the piece of writing or whatever it is that you're thinking about builds up in you over time. I do spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and ultimately, I just write about what, what is most pressing. But I have, I write, I, I just have lists of things I eventually want to write about as well. Like, I just. Do you want to give us some insight? Oh yeah, like I definitely want to write about climate change. I definitely want to write a book about just whales. We're yes. talking about that, yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> um, I would love to write a, bird about, uh, a book about birds. Mm. And um, I would like to write a, uh, a book about women who lie and women who kill. Um, I would like to write about a book of serial killers as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that makes sense to me. Mm. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that in an ominous way, I promise. Um, but it makes sense to me because of the sheer amount of kind of violence we've been talking about here. Like, I think whenever you write about the body, you write about violence, but also the, the violence that that is described in your book is so mundane, you know what I mean? Like it's an everyday kind of violence, it's what you're saying. It's somebody telling you, oh my God, you looked so much better when you were underweight. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like the kind of state institutions that generate violence, like um, there's, there's one person in the book who's described as having her soul tethered to the home office. Mm. Like all of those small kinds of violence. And then when they explode into like spectacular violence, like a serial killer, of course you'd be drawn to that. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Because it's an exaggeration of something that you're already interested in. Yeah, yeah. And also like um, when wars break out in countries, that's the time when serial killers come out to play. Yeah. And so... Um, I've always been fascinated with that. I would look at my uncles and just think, which one of you? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. <'Cause they're> sure. all... <laughs> some of them look like they got up to some wildness. Yeah, when, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm interested in evil. Mm. I am interested in it because I unfortunately came across a lot of cruelty and so especially as a young child. And so I spent a lot of my life and I and I knew that I wasn't like that. And even though you know, monsters can create monsters. Obviously, a lot of people who are experience abuse end up being abusive themselves. But I always just wanted to understand, like, where, why, and where does this come from, and what is it? And um, I'm still fascinated with that. I want to understand how people can grow up in the same house and one person can be so different from the other, and can we change that? Is there anything that we can do about that? And f I, also, though, without poetry, maybe I would be like that. Because I do, there's a strong vengeance in me. I find it really difficult to forgive. I'm um, mm. just being completely honest. And the poetry allows me to let a lot of stuff go because yeah. I'm just, each time some, something happens, I'm just like, you know, I leave it to God, but also I'm going to write it about it. Yeah. And some people, are, there are teachers that made my life hell that I would love to write a book about. Yeah. And, you know, um, all that. I just feel like I'm going to air it out, yeah. you know. Um, but for now... Um, it's just really cathartic. I'll be real with you. I honestly think vengeance is a really good kind of position from which to write. Mm. Like, it sounds like a joke, but I actually <laughs> think it is. Because a lot of the time, you know, people, people may ask, wonder, like, where's the hope? Where's the love and everything? And I'm like, yeah, but that's the other side of vengeance. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't need revenge if you'd completely given up, would you? Yeah. It's yeah. still a gesture of yeah. protection. Yeah. 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 And I always go back to this quote, which um, it was Alice Walker that said, um, and I, it's so, a lot of us, especially a lot of writers, I think, especially a lot of black writers are holding so much rage <clears throat> and this is the only way to, to get it out. And she has this quote, um, that writing saved her from the sin and inconvenience of murder. And I just love that. So... I yeah I, I, that's amazing I'm gonna remember that <laughs> but also because <clears throat> I'm sitting here trying to like restrain myself because I know Warson is a horror movie fan 
as am I. And I like promised myself not to say anything about it tonight because I know people don't care. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> but like, I'm going to have to do it. Yeah, forget about them. Go on. There's an element. Like, is this me overanalyzing? Mm. Or is there an element of the slasher in what you write? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> mm. I love horror. Yeah. There is that genre element. Like, you dig into the body in a way that's really visceral mm. and really violent, but also has a lot of care. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I just compared you to Freddy Krueger. <laughs> I, I really do love all of that, so thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the same kind of heightened body horror kind of thing, I think. It's like, a constant fear, yeah. I think, yeah. And I have I've been feel like I've been terrified for most of my life until yeah. I found horror. And then, um, and even though like different therapists have said that possibly it's not a good mo coping mechanism, but it's better than, at first I started off watching fight videos of real life fight videos. I felt like I had so much anger in me and then I found myself drawn to like people attacking each other. And then I went to like animals attacking each other. And I thought, this is weird. Like I'm gonna go down a weird, so um, when I started looking for specific horror, there are like um, uh, recent, anyway, I'm not gonna go, this is not a discussion about horror. <laughs> but um, I would start my day off with watching a horror film and it would just, put all my stuff so far in the back. Mm. And I felt so grateful to be alive and just like, wow, life is heaven. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, yeah. you know, and it really worked for me and it still does. I and completely understand yeah, that. Yeah, just keep going back to that. It yeah. feels really good. Yeah. And also because it's a way of, you mentioned earlier that you'd been subjected to cruelty, that you'd been afraid, yeah. all of these things, and accessing a kind of over-the-top pop cultural version of that is also a way of experiencing yeah. vicariously as entertainment, yeah. as something that's removed from you because you've been through what the actual stuff is. Mm -hmm. You've been through the bad things, mm -hmm. and this is nothing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like being chased around a summer camp by somebody in a mask. Like I wish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it would make a great book. <laughs> great vengeance. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about ugliness. Mm. The book begins with a quote by Hiromi Ito that says, I was an ugly child. You were an ugly child. We were ugly children. And ugliness is something that keeps showing up in your poetry. What makes it sort of aesthetically, politically interesting to you? Because um, I think um, the ugliness is just something that you feel. Just, you know, it's not a something, for me, it was never something that you look like. And so um, I remember actually this, this guy um, read, um, Bless the Ugly Daughter poem, and just started writing me poems, just talking about, you're not ugly, you know, don't worry about it. And it's, no, it's not about self-esteem. I actually know I'm very fine. Like, uh, just be real. Like, w you have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. My face is beautiful, do you know what I'm saying? So is yours. And I think what makes our faces beautiful is like the human being inside of it, like the light behind your eyes and the way you choose to dress and the way you choose to carry yourself and the way you do your hair. And, the way you move your hands, all of these things are so, so it took me a long time to figure out like that is what is beauty about people, the way they laugh and the way they smell. And so I know that I'm beautiful because it's like, it took a while, but it's deep. And I see, and I, and I love beauty and I adore beauty. And I'm actually quite vain in that I love beautiful things. I love beautiful interior design. I love beautiful textiles. I, so I've always been interested. I love gold. I love makeup. I love glitter. I love all this bullshit, right? But I know at the same time that um, it's who you are on the inside, but it, it it doesn't matter if you feel, if you've been told over and over and over again that you're ugly, it's very difficult. For me, I was always made fun of for my hair and then later realized that it was actually one of the strongest things about making me visibly black and then therefore connect with others like me no matter which city I went to. Um, things like that, um, but the ugliness, is just something that is put in you when you're a child and it's hard and it comes back and um, it's always in the mirror 
and it has nothing to do with the way I look. It's just I feel, sometimes I just feel worthless, and the worthlessness is connected to ugliness. So I always wanted it to be clear, like, I'm not saying I'm actually ugly, I'm not blind, but I do feel ugly all the time. And so, and the eyes in which you're using to see yourself through, and because I have body dysmorphia, and, uh, and I, I, I was diagnosed with OCD as a teenager, these are things that I, um, obsessed with, and I grew up with a very beautiful mother. So beauty to me was always something that I was really drawn to. I loved watching her put her makeup on. She was very, very feminine. Um, and yeah, so, but uh, the ugliness is something I always feel. Could you read us yes, that poem? I promise not to say, you're fine. <laughs> You're actually beautiful. No, but he was just being really annoying. Like, yeah, exactly, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Like, who asked you? Yeah. And he was a fellow poet. Nee, you know who it is, but I'm not going to say his name. But he just kept saying to me, look in the mirror and tell yourself you're beautiful. Bro, get the hell out of my face. What the hell? I will tell you who it is later. <laughs> um... <clears throat> Bless your ugly daughter. Bless your ugly daughter. She knows loss intimately. A child, relatives avoided, felt like splintered wood, smell of seawater. She reminded them of thirst of war. As an infant forced to gargle rose water, smoked in Ansi to purify her of whatever unclean thing she inherited. Your daughter is covered in it. Her teeth are small colonies. Her stomach is an island. Her thighs are borders. So few will want to lay down and watch the world burn from their bedroom. Your daughter's face is a small riot. Her hands are a civil war. She has a refugee camp tucked behind each ear. A body littered with ugly things. But God... Doesn't she wear the world well? Thank you. I was thinking about what you said earlier about coming from a family or community where you're supposed to push everything aside, repress everything. Mm -hmm. If something happened to you, if you're the victim, if you're the perpetrator, just don't talk about it. And the ugliness of this daughter is that she's a reminder of everything people want to forget. And what I think is interesting about that is that in a sense, memory becomes ugly. Mm -hmm. Insisting on remembering is to insist on ugliness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually, wow, you really... I think I got because I was the eldest in my family, and I and I think um pro, like I had this strong sense of like um, fairness, and I think it was probably me being neurodivergent and not knowing. But I would always my somebody was getting like treated badly. I always felt I was always asking the adults questions that they didn't want to hear, and so therefore I got a lot of their um, punishment from them. So. Um, there is definitely something to that. I think if I was more quiet, I would, you know, wouldn't have gotten as much. But. but also that poetry is such a good form for remembering, I think, because it leaves so much space as yeah. well. You write about your memories, I read them, and there's enough space for it to become similar to or remind me of my memories. Yeah. That, I think, is so... Just one of the things that I really, really love about your poetry. Anyway. Thank you. Yes, yeah. I was thinking about the voice as well, if we abandon the body briefly. <laughs> um, 
this book kind of moves through very many different voices and kind of characters and people and experiences. But there is, I think, a voice, you know, a consistent voice throughout. And it's observant and it's wry and it's kind of compassionate and occasionally, like, calls people out. What is that voice? Like, uh, how did it come about? How did you find that voice in your poetry? Oh, I don't know. You're like, it's just me. I think it is just yeah. me. What you described sounds like me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Calling everything out. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, earlier we were also talking about um, reading. And the way reading is something that is also very bound up with how you view your poetry. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, um, the voices that, the, the writers that made a massive impact on me and still do are writers who, like, I, I referenced um, Alice Walker, also, of course, Toni Morrison, but um, my favourite writer ever is a Haitian writer called Edwige Danticat. And in her collect first collection of short stories called Crick Crack that she wrote when she was 22 years old, which is so amazing to even um, wrap your head around. Um, and I recommend it to everybody to Crick Crack, okay, make your lives better. She was writing so clearly and with so much compassion, so much love and understanding, but also being really clear about what was messed up about the women in her life and her country. And I think that definitely inspired me. Um, I also grew up reading a lot of um, poetry by Suhair Hamad, the Palestinian poet. And I think she also helped me be grounded in I'm Muslim and I'm proud of that, you know, and I don't need to hide that or um, compartmentalize parts of myself in order to um, connect with the mainstream or people who are Islamophobic. I don't care about any of that. So Edwidge grounded me in being proud of being Somali and Suhail grounded me in being proud of being, in being Muslim. And then all the other writers from James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, uh, Alice Walker, Sonia Sanchez, um, Gwendolyn Brooks, all, and, 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 and black British writers as well, like Bernadine Inveresto that I was reading before I ever met her. Um, and and, and, and um, Writers like Tan Tanana Reeb Jew, who, um, Octavia Butler, all of those reminded, not reminded me, but grounded me in my blackness as well. So those things are important. Those people are important and those books are important in um, me knowing who I am. But uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X really made a big, 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 big impact on me when I was a teenager as well. My father being uh, very pan-African, Afrocentric, all of that mixed with my mum, even though she was a bit of a bully, she would always say, like, my daughter is free, my daughter is liberated. Like, words, phrases like that in Somali, like, like, that those things like oh, basically that like when people would say your daughter should cover up she'd be like leave her alone you know that kind of um made me feel like she was a, a womanist at heart and I looked at the way that she lived her life and actually and if she wasn't um held down by us her children she didn't have a choice in family planning then maybe she would have been you know um who knows what kind of life she led. So I also know that she made it so that I could be who I am today, even though the childhood was dysfunctional. She still gives me complete freedom mm. to write about anything that I want and also protects me from the wider family. And mm. so proud of me, even though she messed me up. <laughs> but I also know that I am my mum with a second chance. And... Mm. Um, and I love her so much for giving me the opportunity to choose. I really love that because that essentially describes this book mm. precisely, I think. All these different voices coming together to become one voice that speaks with a lot of sort of pride and very little shame, you know, about what it observes. Thank you. It's just me giving you compliments uh, and trying it. to talk about horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I really like you, so. Thank you. Mm. But another thing that I was thinking about while reading this book is that it's very much a book about black millennial girlhood as well. Mm. It references Absolutely Fabulous, Babysitter's Club, which I don't think anyone remembers. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, 
and Dawson's Creek and waiting to exhale and stuff. What what is that time to you? What does it mean? It was a, it was uh, the childhood and the adolescence I spent in front of the TV, mm. and they were like the friends I made and the way in which I would fantasize and daydream. They were my examples of what it meant to be loved or to have a life or to, you know, all of that. Um, so I was raised by the TV. Another thing is um, Oprah was a big, big thing at that time. And so she would be talking about um, a lot of really interesting things, but at the same time, she was heavy on the weight loss around that time. Um, and so I know that that messed up a whole generation of us, yeah. like constantly seeing her yo-yo dieting. And um, there was also like a whole generation of girls like our age who went and got um, the lap band surgery because Oprah said it was a good idea at the age of 15. Mm. So, but anyway, we're not talking about Oprah right now. And I love her. Don't come for me. <laughs> <I'm just> gonna... <laughs> <coughs> um, but yeah, I think um, there was something also beautiful about that time in which... Nickelodeon shows were so different to the way that they are now. If you remember, Are You Afraid of the Dark and Goosebumps and... Um, I loved Goosebumps, yeah. unsurprisingly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you watch Eerie Indiana no. or Alex Mack? Yeah. There was just a lot of like sci-fi and horror and stuff. But um, those were the years that, um, like, you know... They're all the references, mm. yeah. And I'm so interested in pop culture. I still am. I love, like, Real Housewives of everything. I look at it from this space of, like, um, like postmodernism. I find it so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's the intersectionality of class and, and, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and female friendships. It's fascinating. Capitalism, is a, there's a lot going on there. Um, I've always found TV as a way to, like, just study humans. Um, and I'm just fascinated in just, with just humans and their mess. So, um, but the references are just what st stuck in my mind. I've always been in love with Angela Bassett and it was great as well. Be <laughs> um, I, it was great being, so the people that were bullying me in my house were also the people that were watching Juice and that were watching Poetic Justice and that were putting on... Mm. So, like, they were bullies, but at the same time, they let me watch so much horror. They let me watch all the adult films that I wasn't supposed to and I was part of conversations that I shouldn't have been listening to. So, and all of that really made me who I am. So I'm also grateful to them. Yes, yeah. yeah. Because I, they, they were... Um, like, for example, one of the first films I saw in, in the cinema was Preacher's Wife with oh, yeah. Whitney Houston and, and, Denzel. and Denzel. And for that to be one of the first films I've watched in, is because I was with um, my aunt and she was on a date with her boyfriend and I was forced to go with them because <laughs> there was nobody to look. So she hated me and she was cussing me the whole time, but I was so happy to be there watching that film. Yeah. <laughs> Would you be able to read Bless Grace Jones for us? Yes. Speaking of... Bless Grace Jones. Holy mother of those deemed intimidating, patron saint of the unapproachable, savior of those told to soften their expression. Our lady of uncomfortable silences. Dame Grace Jones, your daughters damn their insomnia turn in their dreamless sleep, a legion of women flinching at touch, fortify them, monarch of the last word, darling of the dark arched brow, we bless you, queen of the Katai, we lay our burdens at your feet, careful not to weigh you down, from you we are learning to put ourselves first. Thank you. You're welcome. I will say this about like the pop culture and the, and kind of that early 2000s pop culture is you really managed to capture the kind of 
toxicity and innocence mm. of that time because we were less inundated with media than we are now. So it shaped us to a huge extent, like top model, like... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many lives that ruined. Yeah, no. Um, and, but, and still there was a kind of, there was a kind of innocence to it, you know? But then, yeah, but then also, tying back to what we were saying about horror movies, pop culture is this heightened expression of things that are already going on in our houses, in our lives, mm. in school. Mm. I love that poem about Grace Jones Thank because you. that's exactly what she is, isn't she? Like yeah. a, a saint, a patron saint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always had um, these kind of like patron saints in my head that I would, Grace Jones has always been one, Miriam McKeb has always been one. I've always had these um, women who in my head like um, were kind of like some sort of like mothers to me in my head um, and and guiding saints as well. And there's so many that I look to even the, it, uh, the integrity in which they have or the way in which the world tries to attack them and they're still strong. And, and Grace Jones has always been that for me. Anytime I'm feeling a little bit um, unsure of myself, I just go watch interviews because she's just so herself uh, um, at a time and in a world where you know everything is against her. At the same time, she is the pinnacle of beauty, um, whether people want to accept or admit not. I think somebody like her also brings up the insecurities of a lot of people who are so deeply connected to white supremacy. And I love that about her. And she's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Mm. I, I think about her functioning as a reminder of white supremacy mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. being why some people say, oh God, she's so ugly, she's so dark. And it's like, it reminds you of that, yeah. doesn't it? It reminds yeah. you of a legacy yeah. of slavery, colonialism, and so on. Yeah. And that's what you're uncomfortable with. That's what you want to wash away. Mm. And she makes it impossible. Big hyped about <laughs> Grace Jones. But you have been talking a bit about television, about... Um, movies and obviously I, I have to ask are you planning on working with more visual elements you worked with lemonade with black is king is that something you're interested in exploring further i think for now um it's not something that i'm going out of my way to do mm. but if a, a project that made sense came along then definitely um but I don't know. I hope at some point that I could like write a horror film or something like that. That would be my That'd dream. That'd be right. Yeah. yeah, I'd love that. Yeah, that's like that's long term dream. Yeah, but it's not something that I make any plans towards or anything mm. because the the whole film world terrifies me anyway. I think. Oh uh, yeah. 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 I see why. There's a lot more. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You have to barter mm. with yourself essentially because you have also written a short film yeah but that was um like charity based yeah so that that's always beautiful and i mm. love um also working with animation there's one that um is being wrapped up now um an animation that's about a young girl in tanzania uh, or tanzania um who ends up becoming a wedding singer at her at a family wedding and, and how it changed her life. And it's a really beautiful story. But what I enjoy about that is working with the people that the stories are actually based on rather than, yeah. 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 Because what I imagine is also a huge difference is the sheer amount of collaboration. Yeah. I love collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what terrifies me about just going into the film world, it would be, it doesn't feel, it's not a collaboration with people I want to collaborate with. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care about you producers and all of this. Like, I want to collaborate with people I actually respect or people mm. who have lived. Uh, yeah. Like a, but also you started out collaborating with Beyonce. So after that, it's like, where do I go? <laughs> yeah. Like, who I agree. else? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. We have enough time for a final poem 
Uh, and I would ask you to read backwards, which is the poem Athena read in Swedish yes. to begin with. Backwards. The poem can start with him walking backwards into a room. He takes off his jacket and sits down for the rest of his life. That's how we bring dad back. I can make the blood run back up my nose, ants rushing into a hole. We grow into smaller bodies. My breasts disappear, your cheeks soften, teeth sink back into gums. I can make us loved, just say the word. Give them stumps for hands if even once they try to touch us without consent. I can write the poem and make it disappear. Stepdad spits liquor back into glass. Mum's body rolls back up the stairs. The bone pops back into place. And maybe she keeps the baby. Maybe we're okay, kid. I'll rewrite this whole life, and this time there'll be so much love you won't be able to see beyond it. You won't be able to see beyond it. I'll rewrite this whole life and this time there'll be so much love. Maybe we're okay, kid. Maybe she keeps the baby. Mum's body rolls back up the stairs. The bone pops back into place. Stepdad spits liquor back into glass. I can write the poem and make it disappear give them stumps for hands if even once they try to touch us without consent. I can make us loved. Just say the word. Your cheeks soften. Teeth sink back into gums. We grow into smaller bodies. My breasts disappear. I can make the blood run back up my nose, ants rushing into a hole. That's how we bring dad back. He takes off his jacket and sits down for the rest of his life. The poem can start with him walking backwards into a room. Thank you. Mm -hmm.